Well, uh, due to the kindness of some corporate sponsors, um, this past Monday, downtown Chicago was, uh, let's see if we can fix this, here we go, downtown Chicago had Free Museum Day. And uh, I'm not sure, maybe some of you, Karen said, oh, uh, Shadow Aquarium, Field Museum, Museum of Science and Industry, Planetarium, um, all free. And so for, for me, I take Mondays off, and so it was a perfect family trip for us. And it was especially timely for us uh, because Stephanie, our nine-year-old, you're studying like aquatic life in your science class, right? And so that was perfect to go to the Shed Aquarium. And for David, um, my eight-year-old, he's been fascinated by sharks and by squids. My, my five-year-old, by sharks and squids and octopi or octopuses or however you, you say that. And so he was really excited to be to see the, the sharks and things like that. And when we told our children, they're excited to go, thrilled at the opportunity, about ready to, to go downtown, um, downtown Chicago to see these things. In fact, so excited. I think maybe some of you uh, were around and um, heard David say to some of you, we're going to New York tomorrow. I mean, just kind of jumbled in his mind, but was very excited in his mind to go and, and see the museums in the big city. And so we drove in, and it was just Yvonne and I and our two youngest. We felt uh, 10 years younger than we really are. Uh, but we took our two youngest in, and when we were driving down, uh, let's see, whatever, 90, 94, coming in Chicago, when you start to see the skyline, can you imagine the sight of seeing buildings like that for the very first time? And David was like, oh, look at the buildings, look at the buildings. As we got closer, the buildings got even bigger and bigger. And so his excitement was even more and more as these buildings, just look at the building, look at the building. And then as they get into Shed Aquarium, you guys know what that's about when you have kids. Oh, look at this fish. Oh, look at this. Look at this. And we'd, I'd be watching something. I'd be looking at it. And he would be off over here looking at something and say, dad, dad, dad. And he'd be pulling my arm and... And really excited about things. And they were, they were not disappointed. They loved the exotic fish. They loved the diver in feeding the fish. They loved the spider crab, especially. They loved the dolphins. They loved touching the starfish. Um, that was, that was pretty wild. But they liked kind of playing in the water there more than anything else. And great was their enthusiasm for what they saw. Now, my hope for you this morning is that you might have a similar excitement for the next several weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church. In our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, we've come to chapter 14, which begins the Passion account. Passion just means emotions or suffering. The, the suffering of Jesus starts right here in Mark chapter 14. And the Passion account covers less than a week in time, only really a, a, a few days, if you will, when Jesus is anointed for His burial. And then He celebrates the Passover with His disciples and forever changes the ritual. And, and then He prays in Gethsemane. And then He's betrayed by Judas and arrested and put on trial and eventually flogged and beaten and crucified on the cross and climaxing in His resurrection. The end of Mark chapter 16. The story is so central to the biblical truth that it appears in all four Gospels. Just as I outlined whether it's the, the preparation for the burial and then, then the, the Last Supper and, and then Gethsemane and then the, the betrayal and the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection. That same sequence, that same story is covering about the last three chapters of every Gospel, whether it's Matthew, whether it's Mark, whether it's Luke, 
or whether it's John, just right there, the same events, just uh, over and over, fourfold repetition is, by the way, no accident. Because this indeed is the core story of the Bible. In fact, I was thinking there's only one other story that's told four times in the Bible. And that's, anyone know? What? Who? The birth of Christ is told really twice in uh, Matthew and Luke. Saul's conversion, that may, that may be, as he repeats that testimony over and over. That's a good, I didn't think about that one. I guess I'm just thinking there's one miracle that was told four times in all Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle. Other than that, there's no story so long, so big, so impactful that's told so many times. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to work our way from Mark 14 through 15 and culminate Easter Sunday on Mark 16 with the account of the resurrection. And so that means we have a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of verses to cover today. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We began this book in January a year ago, 2012, and hopefully we'll finish it here in Easter this week. And really, how appropriate is it for us to be going through the Gospel of Mark right here at the end at this time of the year? This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. It's Wench Wednesday. It, it signals the beginning of Lent, that 40-day period, season of time in the church calendar when Christians all over the world focus their attention upon the passion of Jesus Christ. Now, there's no biblical command to observe Lent. All right? We aren't obligated to have this 40-day period in which we focus upon His um, sufferings and death, burial, and resurrection. But when the majority of the professing Christian world is focusing their attention upon the suffering of Christ, I think it's a, a worthwhile thing for us to be able to jump on that bandwagon. We can jump on that bandwagon. There's some bandwagons that the, the world does that we can't jump on. We can do that one. So it'll be good for us here to do the same thing. And I'm excited about it. I hope you have enthusiasm as well. Now, one of our traditions at Rock Valley Bible Church is during this season of Lent every year is to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Six times. Uh, lots of churches vary on this. Some, some churches celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And uh, I, just, I just know personally, I think that that might get tiresome after three years or ten years to do it every Sunday. Some like us, about every month. Some the first Sunday of the month. We're every four to six weeks. It kind of changes and shifts. Some every quarter. Some just once a year. I don't think there's any command in Scripture about how often to do it. And there's no command to celebrate every six weeks during Lent. I don't think we're prohibited from it either. But each week, think about what it's going to do. It's going to bring us back to the death of Jesus. It's going to bring us back to the cross of Jesus. And that can do nothing but help our souls. I believe it would be profitable for us to do so. So at the end of my message, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's where we're going in verse 26. So let me read our text for us this morning. We're starting in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Where Jesus, well, Mark says this, Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Him by stealth and kill Him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While He was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over His head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? 
For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you and whatever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my head beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely it is not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them and They all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We see here in these 26 verses, six scenes that really set up the crucifixion. Set up the passion account. The, the first scene there is the, the plot to kill Jesus. And then we see this woman anointing Jesus for the burial. And then we see Judas planning to betray Jesus. And then we see the, the preparation of the Passover. And then we see the prediction of the betrayal by Jesus. And finally, we see the celebration of the Passover right there at the end. And these six scenes are really like a, a good novel. You think about a novel and how it's written and, and, and various chapters. Oftentimes it will go from, from one person and one object or one scene to a, another person. And, and, and maybe it will give an insight into that. And then it will jump to something else entirely different and something entirely different. And, and then what happens at some point, these, these uh, characters and these scenes, they collide. 
and they come and they have contact with each other, whether it's romantic and they meet and they, they fall in love or whether it's uh, uh, enemies, the good, the bad, and they come and they, they, they fight and they war, whatever. But, but, but in, order, in order to climax that event, you've got to do some preparatory work. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He, he's setting the scene for the, what takes place at the end when uh, Jesus is finally arrested. Just kind of the different things. He's predicting it. He's predicting the betrayal. Jesus hears his disciples. He's anointed. He's ready. And then it's all going to come to climax when arrested and taken over. We have a scene, a scene. This, though, Mark isn't writing volumes of chapters. He's writing just a couple verses on each particular scene. So these seven, six scenes are going to form the basis of our outline this morning. We're going to look at these. They set the stage. It's the title of my message this morning, Setting the Stage for the Passion First, let's look at the plot to kill. It takes place in the first two verses. Look there again in verse 1. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Sets so a time for us. The, the Passover is always celebrated on the first month, the 15th day. Okay? The first month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Nisan. And it would be the 15th day of the month of Nisan, which... The Jewish calendar is different than ours. I mean, it, the months kind of sway. They don't have leap days. Right? They have leap years. They have leap months. And so the month kind of changes according to the moon. And uh, what happens is in the Passover takes place late March, early April, exactly like our, uh, our Easter does. And this Passover meal would take place then on Thursday night. So the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread take place right after that. Go for seven days. And so this places our time frame here in verse 1 around Tuesday evening of, of Passion Week. And the religious leaders had gathered together on that day and they were, were scheming together. So it says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, this isn't any new thought. They've been tracking through the Gospel of Mark. You know full well that, that they, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to capture him. In fact, back in chapter 3, verse 6, when Jesus healed the man with a withered hand... As soon as it was restored, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Right there, early in the gospel, right when Jesus showed that he was a Sabbath breaker by healing on the Sabbath, they were intent against him, wanting to destroy him. And on several occasions, they brought him questions, right? The Pharisees asked him for a sign, testing him. Or at one point, when Jesus was in the region of Perea, which is beyond the Jordan, where John the Baptist lost his head because he made a statement against Herod, how his, how his marriage was unlawful. They asked him about divorce and questions on marriage and divorce, hoping maybe Herod would lop off his head as well, like he lopped off John the Baptist's head. Or in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, they, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to try to trap him in a sentence and trap him in a word. So they asked about paying taxes. If anything's volatile, it's your... Um, it's your purse, it's your money bag, it's your pocketbook. And so they really tried to capture him in that. The Sadducees tried to capture him about the resurrection and always trying to, trying to capture him. But now the strategy takes a turn. Instead of trying to trap him in something he might say to have the people rise up and kill him, they're trying to just kill him outright is what's taking place. here. Yet, yet they were afraid of, of the people. So they wanted to do it by, by stealth. And doing it by stealth means, you know, in the, the Russian ghetto when people just disappear. That's what they're trying to do here. Just, just trying to take him away. But with all these people, um, they didn't want to do it during the Passover. And the Passover was a time when a, a city of maybe 30,000 would swell to over a million. And with all these people, they didn't want to do it then. 
And so that was their strategy. They're saying, verse two, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot among the people. The murder of Jesus, they thought, would surely set off a, a riot among his followers and trying to follow him. And as the peace would be disturbed, right, then then Rome would get in and maybe the religious leaders would lose their power. And they didn't want that. Not during the festival. Now, during the human stand, from a human standpoint of view, I think it's a wise thing, right? When lots of crowds, you don't want to do it, bring attention to yourself. And so instead, what they did was to try to be covert about it. But how ironic is it, right? That for years, they're trying to kill Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to get him. And finally, on the one time when they say, oh, not now, when did God deliver Jesus up? Right then, there at that moment. I mean, just the sovereignty of God is all over this thing. It's, it's Proverbs 16, verse 9, right? The, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And they planned, oh, tried to kill him, tried to kill him, tried to kill him. God said, not now. And they said, well, we're not going to kill him now. And then God says, now. So like God. Like the story we've told of a, of a, a man um, who worked as a servant of a wealthy merchant. And the servant had gone into a town to shop for the day and, and suddenly he felt someone brush against his, his back and, and kind of to grab him a little bit. And somewhat offended, he turned towards the person who jostled him and found himself staring to someone eye to eye with someone who had the um, death in his eyes. He spoke of death and panicking. What this man did is he, he left and ran home to his master, a fear, a, a, afraid. And he's running breathlessly towards the house. The master met him on the front steps. He says, what on earth is wrong with you? He said, oh, sir, someone in the marketplace rudely brushed me. And when I turned to see him, it, it, he looked like the angel of death to me. And I, he had shock on his face. And I almost, he, almost as if he wanted to grab me. And then I backed away. And I'm afraid, sir, I don't want to go back to that marketplace right now. And so the, the master said, we'll saddle one of our horses and ride all day and ride to the distant village of Samara, the master said, and stay there until you get word from me that all is okay. The servant saddled the horse and he rode off to um, Samara. And then the, 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 the uh, master made his way back to the marketplace to find the person who so frightened his servant. And he went his way through the crowded streets looking for this individual who looked like the angel of death and and all of a sudden, he, he came upon this strange-looking individual. And the merchant said, who are you? He said, you just scared my servant. He said, yes, indeed. He said, well, why did you frighten him? He said, well, I was truly surprised to see him here. See, I am the angel of death. And, and I chose to spend my day here before heading to my stop tonight. You see, it was not so much that I surprised him as he surprised me. Because I did not suspect to see him here because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. There it is. Right? A man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps. It's a great illustration of what's taking place here. And said, They're trying to kill him. And they say, not now, not now. And God says, now is the time. Because everything had come to place. It was time for Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus knew this. He was telling them, Son of man is going to be crucified. In fact, even he says here in the next scene, he speaks about his burial. Let's go to the next scene. We said the plot to kill. Now we go to the anointing for burial. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. 
that during the Passion Week, Jesus used to spend his days in Jerusalem. But each night he would go up and over the hill, the Mount of Olives, and go down just a little bit to Bethany. About a, two miles away, not a very far walk. A half an hour walk, maybe. And uh, normally, I think he probably stayed with his good friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But this, this day finds him, the home of Simon the leper. Probably a leper who Jesus had healed and, and cured. I think that Simon was probably having Jesus in his home so as to demonstrate his love to Jesus by, by hosting him. We see what took place there in, in verse 3. We see that there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, pure nard. She broke it and poured it all over her head. This perfume was very costly, is what we read here. We read in verse 5, the disciples talk about how this perfume was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was a, a common laborer's day's wage. So we're talking about common labor, 300 days labor. We're talking $20,000. We're talking $30,000, something like that. That's some expensive perfume. Ladies, I'm not sure the kind of perfume that you buy. I don't think you buy anything this expensive. But the commentators say, well, maybe it came from India. It imported, made some of the expense of it. Maybe there's a large amount of it, whatever. But when the disciples saw what she had done, they began to calculate the cost and they were not pleased. If you look at verse 4, some who were around, so it wasn't just Jesus alone, the Simon the leper, there's also this woman. And in fact, uh, even John's account of the passage says it was Mary, like of Mary and Martha, uh, who did this, a, a good friend of Jesus. And some who were the disciples were around. And so we don't know how big this gathering was at Simon's house, but they were indignantly remarking to one another. First of all, this conversation with one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? But this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. John tells us that Judas was the ringleader of this complaint. Not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had money. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. And so he saw this as a loss of his money. And so, of course, he was he was fuming. Of course, he was mad. You wasted my money. Of course, he couldn't say that. Right. But you want to get at anybody and you start pinching their, their checkbook. Right? Phil Gusky has told me many times, a financial counselor, he's told me that when you start talking about people's money and you start talking about what they lose or gain in the market and investments, they get, they get heated. And that's what was happening with Judas. He was heated because to him, he had the love of money, was the root of all evil, and he had a love of money, he had the love of his money, and it was being wasted from his perspective on Jesus. And the protests of Judas soon became the protests of the other disciples, for we read in verse 5, that they were scolding her. It wasn't just him, it was they. Subterfuge here by Judas, kind of talking about them, stir up them, and then kind of he probably backed off, and he probably wasn't the one scolding him so much. Just how it works. And this poor woman, I think of how she was acting in love for her Savior, and what'd she get? She got a group of men just berating her and belittling her for what she had done. Well, Jesus comes to her rescue in verse 6 and says, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? And I'm sure they could have said, well, Lord, here's why we, we bothered her. That ointment is worth a lot of money. She, she wasted it. What a terrible thing that she did. Don't you care about poor people, Jesus? Didn't that just waste it? Doesn't God call us to be good stewards? 
Right. As Benjamin Franklin said, right. Waste not, want not. I think that was Benjamin Franklin, whatever. They wouldn't know that. But they could have said something like that. She's wasted it. And Jesus defends it by the simple statement here. Verse six. She has done a good deed to me. From a logical standpoint, it's a waste. But from love standpoint, it is typical. And it's an expression really of love is what she did here. Love is extravagant. What appears to be waste is actually a gift and an expression of love. That's why the prodigal son. You know, when the prodigal son came to the father and asked for half of the inheritance, I believe it was love that motivated just to lavish it upon him and and let him go. Because we know the father had a great love for him. Love will be generous Love will give to a fault. Love will be gracious. Men, that's why you give your wives flowers. Flowers are kind of wasteful things. I mean, they're pretty and all, but they wilt and they're gone away. Um, I know I'm the worst of giving flowers here in the congregation. So don't feel like I'm giving you a guilt trip, man. Don't, don't feel like, hey, you got to go out and be like Pastor Steve. You're like Pastor Steve. You're not going to buy very many flowers. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the trick. Just men, okay? Yes. When you do give some, it's like, whoa, what happened there? Right? But flowers are extravagant. And there may be some other things that are extravagant that you give your wives. And that's what's taking place here. Is she's giving an extravagant gift. Love is willing to sacrifice greatly for the good of others. Even when it sounds unreasonable. You know who some of the most unreasonable people are in the world? Dating couples. They will go to unbelievable extents or trips or costs or, or, or going and, and doing whatever. They, why? Because their love is extravagant. They're trying to win a girl, a man is. She's trying to win him and they're back and forth. They'll do that. And often, right, what you did in your dating, you don't do in your marriage because the prize has been conquered already. But, but I'm just saying that dating, when you're, you're fatuated, that, that's where it is. That's where it ought to be always. Just extravagant. Doing things, even when it costs your most precious possession, love will willingly sacrifice. And that's what she did. Twenty to $30,000 wasn't too much to spend on her Lord. Notice in verse 6, what the disciples call a waste, Jesus calls a good deed. Jesus goes on to explain, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus says this, I'm leaving soon. My days are numbered. He's prophesying, predicting of his death. So he sets the scene for what takes place in the, in the cross. And he says, your opportunities to be with me are limited. Abundant opportunities with the poor now and forever. But with me, very few opportunities. And isn't it the case that when a loved one leaves, there's a lot of attention paid on that loved one? We sent our daughter to college this past year and and when it was time to say goodbye it was it was kind of hard to say goodbye well should we stay a little bit longer should we what what should we do and we we took a picture right there at the end because we knew our time was short and and i think the deal was is that this woman here got it she knew that the time was short therefore she did what she could to the disciples the disciples seem seem clueless 
But she then expressed her love to Jesus, covering his body with sweet smelling perfume. The aroma probably, if you're talking about $20,000, $30,000 of, of perfume poured. Think about the smell that would have been in Simon's house for days, months maybe. And uh, you know how smell triggers a, a memory? Simon probably would have been there and somehow he got a, a whiff of some of this perfume and he's brought back just right here to this scene. Just thinking about this woman's lavish love upon Jesus, her Savior. And this sweet smell actually continues today. Well, maybe not the perfume, the actual physical smell, but as we hear the story repeated, we can experience many of the same emotions that Simon experienced This woman's great act of devotion. Look what it says in verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. And the scriptures fulfilled this morning at Rock Valley Bible Church as we think about this wasteful woman who's wasting her love on Jesus. Her example is a model for us to follow. We ought to love the Lord in this manner. No sacrifice ought to to be too great to follow the Lord. I, I preached earlier in the year, right? Romans 12.1 I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy to the Lord. This is your spiritual service of worship. Why did, Mary, why did this woman, Mary, if it was, sacrifice this perfume for Jesus? Because there was great kindness and, and love to her, which gave her reason to respond to him, right? The mercies of God cause us to, to give her all. And so likewise, what Christ has done for us on the cross ought to lead us to do things like this woman did. Do you know anything of this? Do you know anything of complete sacrificial devotion to the Lord out of love for him? Uh, my 13-year-old daughter, Hannah, is involved in a volleyball league at SportsCore. And Yvonne and I were talking the other day about just the commitment level of the kids and the parents to, to what's taking place there. First of all, it's not a cheap endeavor, right? But, but Hannah's worth it, see, because we just love Hannah. So we'll, we'll invest some resources there and, and give her this to be able to do that. But, but also the time. She had to be there Saturday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. What time do you finish, Hannah? Like one thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, three. Okay, Hannah Yvonne says three. So seven till three. I mean, that's eight hours of playing volleyball, and you loved it, right, Hannah? Just like in her niche, that's like where she is, right, right, right there. And, and we thought about the, the sacrifice of parents. We thought about the sacrifice of kids, and how they love it. And what about when it comes to God and Christ in the church? Do you do you have a similar lavishing of perfume? When you can, do you love the congregation, the assembly of the righteous? Do you love small groups? Do you love discipling relationships? Do you love spreading His word? I think that's the idea here of application we get from her. Well, let's go on now to the, the plan to betray. This comes in verses 10 and 11. We've seen the plot to kill, the anointing for burial, now the plan to betray. Real short, 10 11. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, <clears throat> went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and they promised to give him money and he began seeking how to betray them, him at an opportune time. Now, Mark doesn't give us much here by way of detail. In fact, uh, if, 
if you put things together and you, you kind of think about how long did this whole transaction take? I'm guessing maybe 10 minutes. It's probably all this was. Judas didn't have to go in and schmooze up to them and soften them and get around. He just kind of went to them. Okay, what do you want? I'll betray him. We got. And Matthew tells us that it was 30 pieces of silver that he got. Matthew tells us that he waited out right then and there. He took the money away. He says, okay, I'll betray him at, uh, in a soon opportune time. Real fast, deal done, giving him just a, a little bit of money. This uh, 30 pieces of silver, probably today about 20 bucks. Probably gave him a $20 bill and just said, okay, you do your thing. And uh, how quickly do the plans of men change? Right there in one meeting. They weren't going to kill him, but now if they have an opportunity, the door is open. They got one of his insiders going to betray him. They were going to do that. What a contrast between Judas and this woman, right? This woman loved Jesus. Judas hated Jesus. This woman was willing to, to lavish an abundance of very expensive perfume, tens of thousands of dollars upon Jesus. And Judas is willing to betray Jesus for... 30 pieces of silver, $20. This woman giving herself to Jesus. Judas using Jesus for his own good. This woman had spent but little time with Jesus. Judas had lived for three years, day in, day out. If anyone, Judas ought to have the affection. The woman expressed her love to her Savior. Judas turned his back on his Savior and eventually even his own salvation. And the, the obvious point of application is this. Is, is your love of the Savior like that of Judas? Fickle, cheap, at your convenience, only what you get out of it? Or is your love like that of the woman who lavished her loves upon the Savior? Wasteful, extravagant, at His service, whatever He wants. Well, we're not going to linger here because Jesus will comment later in verse 21. We'll linger there a little bit longer and we will see the betrayal um, Next week or the week after that, we'll just talk about being betrayed by a friend. And I'm sure that will be helpful to us. So let's move on. Plot to kill, the anointing for the burial, the plan to betray. Here we go. Verses 12 to 16, the preparation for the Passover. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare to eat the Passover? Now, the, the Passover was a feast of remembrance. The time when the Jewish people remember how God delivered them out of Egypt as slaves. They were in bondage as slaves in Egypt and now they were free. It's a little bit like our Independence Day where we were in bondage under the taxes of England and now we are free. We are an independent nation. This was the July 4th of the holiday. In fact, so important though was this holiday. This is when their months began. The Jewish calendar began the day they got out of the land of Egypt. That was the first month. And so it symbolized that Passover was like our Independence Day. But it's bigger. I mean, what do we do on July 4th? Maybe have a picnic someplace. Maybe meander over to a park someplace. Watch some, some fireworks. But... You know, it's, it's just a one day. This was a week-long celebration, Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, this was, a, this was a huge holiday in the life of the Jews. And God gave the Jewish people very explicit directions how to celebrate the Passover. You can read about it in Exodus 12. As on the 14th day of the first month, the Passover lamb to be slaughtered, its blood to be put on the doorposts of the houses, and thereby the Hebrews were, slave, were, were saved from the angel of death who came and killed all the firstborn throughout Egypt. He would see the blood and pass over them. Just thus the name Passover. 
And when the lamb was cooked, God said it needed to be roasted with fire and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Right? The, the unleavened bread was the fact that reminding them they didn't have time to let the leaven raise. So they had to go in haste. The bitter herbs to remind them of the, the bitter time that they had in Egypt. Um, everything was to be eaten. If it wasn't eaten, then you needed to burn it with fire. No doggy bags could be taken home from the, the Passover. And so they just did this. I mean, this was ingrained in the Jewish people. It's ingrained in the Jewish people today. Jews today eat the Passover. And it's a, they don't know if they celebrate all week long. Some do, some don't. But it was commanded in the Bible. And so for them, it was the 14th of Nisan. They, they knew that everyone came in Jerusalem and they're going to celebrate the Passover. They had had several Passovers with Jesus before. They said, well, okay, where, where are we going to do this thing again? Where do you want us to... Make our preparations. The assumption was they were going to do the Passover. And Jesus then said, and He sent two of His disciples, He said, verse 13, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Now, at first glance, this seems a bit strange. I think it is. Why would Jesus be so cryptic? Why would Jesus say, go and find this man carrying water? Now, that would be unique because mostly women carry the water in those days and today in worlds where people need to bring the water from the well every day. But why didn't Jesus name the guy? Or why didn't he name the street or the address or describe what it, what it looked like? Why was he so vague? I think there's a reason why he was vague. His name is Judas. Judas was looking to betray him and Jesus knew full well that Judas was trying to be, betray him. And if Judas had known where Jesus was planning to have the Passover, a sitting duck when everybody's reclining at the table, an ambush could have come. What a better thing. What an easier thing. But in Jesus being cryptic like this, kept it hidden from Judas. Jesus knew full well what was taking place. We'll see in this next section. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. And so he had to hide that from him because the Passover was important. In Luke 22, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In other words, with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you. And the reason for that is it not only was it his last meal, and he wanted his last meal in peace, but he was going to change this tradition that was going on for 1,500 years. He, he, he was going to change it from memorial from Exodus leaving to a memorial for the redemption that I'm providing. And he really wanted to do that. And he's going to change this huge, huge celebration. So he really wanted to do that. And so he sent these disciples off. And, and the plan worked exactly as described. Verse 16, the disciples went out and came to the city and found it there just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. They entered the city, saw this man carrying a pitcher of water. They followed him. They said, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Then I may go and prepare the Passover. And he showed them the room, and they began to prepare for the Passover. And the Passover was far more than a simple meal. It was a, a religious service that, that took place with Scripture readings and blessings and prayers and symbols and discussions about the exodus from Egypt. So they... A lot of preparations took place. Well, in verse 17, we see the preparations were done in the evening. Right? You can see it there. Right when it was evening, He came there with the twelve. This leads us to our fifth scene, the prediction of the betrayal. 
So the whole Passover scene, although one scene has to do with the predicting that Judas will betray, and then the next scene has to do with actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. When evening had come, he came there with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. This is the Passover that all the disciples imagined. Surely it was a festive time. Food was in abundance. Scripture was read. The symbolism was enjoyed. A soft murmur of discussion filled the air. And I'm sure around any table where you got 12 guys, certainly there's going to be some good laughter, right? Making fun of what Peter did, how he spoke out of turn, or, you know, how someone tripped and fell. And, oh, wasn't that really funny? And kind of some laughs, or, oh, did you see this? And maybe it transitioned to a more serious time about ministry concerns, or, or just, but, but just kind of a buzz of a social, a social time that they enjoyed. And then Jesus drops the bombshell here in verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, right, and the festivities were there, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And it was as if the life was taken out of the party. Suddenly the conversation stopped when they realized what Jesus said. The joy and mirth had transitioned into somber reality. I remember this exact kind of circumstance about 20 years ago. We had a Sunday afternoon, had some folks over from church or family. I can't remember exactly who, who came over, but I remember sitting there at the dinner table and receiving a phone call from my old college buddy. And uh, he and I played soccer together. He was a goalie MVP our senior year, um, which we won our division, went on, won our championship, won the Midwest Conference. It was a great, great time. I hadn't spoken with him for some time. Strange he called. Um, but I was excited because I haven't talked to him. I haven't, haven't talked to him for probably 15 years now, but it was about 20 years ago. Hey, Stump, how you doing? And I was I'm pretty excited. Like, oh, what? Boy, it's been a long time. What? What's what's up? And the other end, he wasn't quite so upbeat. He said, uh, I've got some sad news for you. One of our teammates, Bernie Dunn, who was a sweeper for our championship team, was killed in Alaska. Just wanted to let you know. We're just spreading the word so that you can know and um, be aware of whatever funeral plans and things like that. And uh, somehow Bernie was in Alaska studying for a doctorate in biology and he was in some kind of apartment. The landlord came in and I'm not sure if drugs were involved or what, but he basically killed him somehow. And the joy of that moment, just at our home, just completely all sucked out. As I'm thinking about my, my friend I played soccer with, had been murdered and and it wasn't really pleasant for me it was hard to go back and to to think about dinner again and our festivities and and i think surely it wasn't pleasant for the disciples either as they they knew that jesus meant by these words that they knew that jesus was going to die and he told them in mark chapter 8 verse 31 right after they knew that he was the christ he said this he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed and after three days rise again. And several other times, he told them the same thing. In chapter 9, verse 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. And he said even later, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They knew that he was going to die, though they didn't quite understand everything that's going to happen. But I don't think it ever crossed their mind that 
one of them were going to betray Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's a new revelation. They're like, whoa, one of us? How can that be? And I think they were, they were stunned. These disciples knew of Jesus' love for them, how for three years He poured into them, poured into them, was patient when they were disobedient and unfaithful. And, and these disciples responded in love to Jesus and, and responded back. And there was this mutual love. And, and they were like, like tight-knit people. They were like, they were like the three musketeers, right? All for one and one for all. I mean, that, that's where they felt. There was this camaraderie among them. And then to feel like one is... To hear that one is going to betray him, I think they were probably bewildered at first or, or confused. But they, they grasped it. They began to grieve, verse 19 says. And then catch this. The, and they began to say to him one by one, surely not I. Here's how I think the scene took place. Is it one with a soft heart? Probably, maybe. Total speculation, okay? Maybe, maybe John. He had just a tender heart. Maybe, maybe he went up to Jesus and just said, surely not I. And, and then Peter, sensitive a little bit that he is an impetuous, oh, well, he's saying that, maybe I should say it. And Peter said, surely not I. And then Andrew said that. And then, then Thomas, who himself struggled with doubt, surely not I. One by one, they asked these questions. And I believe that even Judas himself came to Jesus and said, Surely not I. All the while knowing that, yes, it's you. But I think he was saving face and lying so as to say, Well, does Jesus really know? I'm going to play the part here. A warning, by the way, of hypocrisy. And Jesus said to them, verse 20, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. Now, it's not clear here. Um, that, that that exactly was defining Judas who dips right at the same time. But from other gospel accounts, we kind of get that um, awareness that Jesus was identifying in a subtle way. Yes, it's you, Judas. Go out what you have to do and go and do it quickly. But it'll be one of them and indeed it will be one of the disciples what Jesus was, was saying here. And Jesus knew that this is the way it must be. He said in verse 21, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. The death of Jesus upon the cross was an event that was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And the early Christians acknowledged the death of Jesus was predestined to occur according to God's purpose. Peter and Paul both determined, both said that salvation is determined before time began according to the good pleasure of God. That this is how it would take place. Let's see, Ephesians... First Peter, speaking of the death of Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Then in time, even Isaiah the prophet prophesied about how the Lord would be pleased to crush him. How he must die. And Jesus said, His Son of Man must go as is written of him. But, and then he speaks of Judas, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is a curse. That's what the word woe means. It's the opposite of the word blessed, right? Remember the the Beatitudes, blessed are these people. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, this an opposite of blessing the, the good favor of God be upon these people. This is woe. May, the, may the, the wrath of God, may the displeasure of God be upon this person. Woe to that man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man had he not been born. Recent days I've been reading through the book of Job, the McShane reading schedule. We're right there. And uh, when he lost everything that he owned, I was afflicted with sore boils. Right there in chapter 3, right the first chapter, he laments his birth. He cursed the day of his birth. He said, why did I not die at birth? And why did I come forth from my womb and expire? He's saying, this is too bad for me. It would have been better for me not even to see the light of day. In reality, though, that was just Job's feeling at that time. It says, no, later when God blessed him doubly, it was better. And he learned a lot of lessons. He taught us a lot of lessons. No, it was definitely best that he not die at his birth. But such was not the reality of Judas. It it, it would have been better for him to die. And that's what Jesus Christ Himself says. Dante wrote Dante's Inferno, where basically he describes hell and all the different divisions in hell, various degrees of punishment for the various types of sin. And as sin became worse and worse, the people placed closer and closer to the center of hell. Do you, do you know who was placed at the very center of hell in Dante's Inferno? Judas Iscariot. Dante believed that Judas Iscariot committed the worst sin, the worst crime. I mean, you you think about a crime. How how do you measure crime? You measure a crime according to whatever, and I don't even know how to say this, whatever you stole or whatever you hurt or whatever you harmed or injured. So if you steal a $1 candy bar, I mean, that's a crime. It's a sin inside of God. It certainly is is bad, but it's, it's a dollar. It's a little bit different than embuzzling millions of dollars through some Ponzi scheme, which is, is even different than killing somebody who is made in the image of God. We have great value, each of us do. You can't put price tag on that. But it's even worse. I do believe Dante got it right. It's even worse to betray the king of the universe. Think about Judas. He saw Jesus in all his flesh and all his glory. He saw him walk full of grace and full of truth. He saw him never sin. He saw him care and righteous. He saw him love Judas and yet... For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed him. 30 pieces of silver was worth more than Jesus was. That's how bad the crime was. I just say the sin of Judas ought to haunt us. If it were possible for Judas to hang around Jesus for three years... And to look like all the other disciples so they don't even have a clue. Might it be possible for some of you to do the same thing? Where it's just, your, your religion is just a, a facade. It's just on the outside. right? You come to church. You look, you look all nice. But all the while, you're pilfering from the money box someplace. All the while, you're, you're, you're doing and engaged in this. Pretending to be upright. Surely not I. And yet, when the truth of God comes, you're merely just a, a hypocrite. And I say, don't presume it won't happen. Just, I just say this, fight the fight of faith. Be praying to the Lord to, to fight on a daily basis for strength. Because surely our, our Christian life goes up and down, okay? And, and overall, the pattern of our lives over decades ought to be an upward increase of love for our Savior. There are ups and downs, okay? But I say fight the fight and don't, don't give in. Don't be a, a Judas who in the end was found to be false as he always was. Even Jesus knew when he chose him. He was the son of perdition whom he chose.
Well, let's look finally here at the, the sixth scene, the celebration of the Passover, verses 22 through 26. And Mark's account of it is pretty brief. He says, while they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And we had taken the cup and given thanks. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. These are, these are very familiar words to us. I mean, every four to six weeks, we go over these words. Rock Valley Bible Church, something similar. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's appropriate for us to celebrate often. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus in a, in a special way. But before it was the Lord's Supper, it was the Passover. And Jesus transformed the ritual into a celebration of His own death. And, and really, think about how radical it was. I know I've said this before, but I've never really gotten over this. So about for years, 1,500 years, what they do, they, they took and drank in remembrance of Moses. In remembrance of Moses. In remembrance of Moses. And finally, Jesus says, He doesn't say here in this text, but He says in other passages, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. That's either highly arrogant to say that I'm greater than Moses or it is absolute truth that Jesus was indeed greater than Moses and he should be the one remembered and Moses should be put into the shadows as indeed he was. The Lord's Supper indeed looks back. And I think of anything about the Lord's Supper, what's coming here, it helps when you understand the Passover. How many of you have been to a Seder meal of Passover before? Okay, if you haven't, let me just describe a little bit about what takes place today. We don't know what took place in Jesus' day, but surely there was some closeness. There are dishes around, an extra place set for Elijah, thinking that he is going to come back sometime and they wanted to be open to him coming back. Um, there's a shank bone of a lamb that reminds them of the sacrifice taken there. There's bitter herbs. There's this apple cinnamon mixture, which is to remind them of, of the mortar the Jewish people used to build, used to build bricks for the Jewish Pharaoh's pyramids and matzah, unleavened bread, which was, wasn't risen, but that's to remind them of how they, they left in haste. And, and during the meal, the Jews today do many things, which I don't know how much this correlates, but something. They, they light candles and they say a blessing over lighting candles and they, they ceremonially wash their hands and they ceremonially, they, they take the parsley and dip it in salt water and they eat the bitter earth so that their face goes, oh, so they remember the bitterness of the time of what it was like. They, they review the ten plagues. And they go through each of them and, and um, remember them one by one. How the water in the Nile was turned to blood. How the frogs came and the gnats and the swarms of insects and the pestilence and the livestock and the boils and the hail and locusts and darkness. One by one, they, they review all of those plagues. And, they, and during the meal, they have, they have wine right in front of them. And they, and they have four celebrations. Today they do anyway. Four celebratory drinks of this wine, right? To, to remember something about the, the redemption. This unleavened bread, they, they, they take it out. And, and I won't get into a lot of detail here, but even Jews today take three sheets of this unleavened bread. And I think it's symbolizing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what they do is they take the, the middle one out and they crush him. And, and they hide him away. 
And then that last, the last thing that they eat. So just it's a, it's a supper filled with symbolism. If you have a chance to eat the Passover with a Jewish friend of yours who doesn't believe in Jesus, go for it and eat the Passover because it's all pointing to Jesus. So here, here's a flavor of what's taking place there. Highly symbolic. And we won't get more deeply into that. That's for another time. But it's totally appropriate here when Jesus inserts his own symbolism in. He says the bread. He says, this is my body. And the wine. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, the disciples would not have been surprised at all of the symbolism. They would have been surprised at the meaning he attributes to the symbolism, but there's symbolism all over this. These are the bitter herbs. This is the unleavened bread. This is the mortar. This is the bitter water, right, from the, the salt water, from their tears. Right? These are our tears, right? They wouldn't think those tears were actually the very tears from back then. They wouldn't think this, this apple cinnamon mixture is the very mortar that they, they used. But some have taken that when it comes here. These four words, this is my body, have become four of the most debated words in all the Bible. I just want to real quickly go through the four views of the Lord's Supper. First of all, you have the Roman Catholic view that says, when Jesus said, this is my body, he means that this is the substance of my body. They believe in transubstantiation, that the, the actual host becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's why when a priest lifts up the, the host and says, whatever, Lamb of God, have mercy on us, and the bells ring, that lamb transform, that bread transforms the body of blood. That's why it's so important for Catholics to take of that bread because they're eating Jesus and they, they want it. And that loaf, the, the bread that's been sanctified, then they put it, I forget what the container is, they put it in the back of the tabernacle, the, the, the church. The red light is on. It means Jesus is in there. It's transubstantiated. That's what the Roman Catholic believes. That's why you ought not to take communion to a Roman Catholic church. It's, it's not right. Okay, just the Jews would not have understood Jesus saying this is my body to understand this is really what it is. Okay, let's step over here. Then there's the Lutheran view coming from Martin Luther. He believed from his Catholic heritage a lot that it's not that the body transubstantiates, it's consubstantiation, con meaning with. Here are the three words in, with and under that the presence of Jesus like glows around this way for a little bit. So it doesn't change it at all. But but Jesus is in, with and under right there. And so. Luther, Luther got it right, but I think he was still swayed a lot by the, the Roman Catholic view. That's the Lutheran view. Then you have the Reformed view, which would be of Calvin. And he would say that the, the, the bread, there's nothing that changes about the bread. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have the real presence of Jesus with us. That Jesus is with us in a special way that he's not with us at other times. And again, maybe influenced by the, the Catholic Church, but Jesus instituting this thing says, well, this is my body and it's, a, it's just a special sacred time. That's the Reformed view. And then you have the memorial view, which would be Ulrich Zwingli at the time of the Reformation, where he says this is all memorial, all symbolic, nothing, other, nothing special here. It's more special than any other time. Okay? And so I specifically said, you've got one that says total change, like... No change whatsoever, no special presence of Jesus. And if you ask me where I am, I'm somewhere between the Reformed view and, and Zwingli's view, some, somewhere in here, I'm not sure exactly. To say that it's a special time, and this is a time that ought to be done in the church. This is a time that Jesus, or that Paul said we ought to 
examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. First Corinthians 11, before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, he says that we have to examine ourselves. What ought we do to examine ourselves? Well, just am I a believer? Am I trusting in Jesus? Am I eating this bread and drinking this cup, saying that my trust and my hope, O Lord, is in you and in you alone? Have I confessed my sins, repented of my sins, turned afresh to seek and follow God? It's very important to, to follow after those ways. And that's where an examination comes in. So I, I think that there is some special aspect to the Lord's Supper that's different than uh, anything else when the church gathers, when we can celebrate of that together. The Supper looks back upon Jesus, but it also looks forward. And let me just finish these verses and then we'll celebrate the Supper Jesus was looking forward when he said in verse 25, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is my last meal I'm having with you guys. And I'm thinking forward to that time in the kingdom when I can eat again and, and drink again with you all. And so likewise, doesn't it make sense when, Jesus, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup. And I think he's just saying, however often you do it, I think is the idea there. Whether you do it weekly, whether you do it monthly, however often you do it, as often as you do this, you proclaim Him. Or you trust in His return. Right? 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, why don't you turn over there before we celebrate the supper. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. This is where Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11:23. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, the night which He is betrayed. He took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here it is. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's this forward-looking aspect that's saying, I... I'm drinking this and eating this because I have a hope in Jesus. And then the examining yourself comes in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing is to eat of the bread or drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. He does not judge the body rightly. And simply put there, if you're a believer in Christ, walk in him, then take and eat. And if you're not a believer in Christ, just let it pass, pass by you. That's okay. If there's sin you're harboring, not confess, just say, I'm holding on. Just let it pass. This is time for corporate repentance. I mean, how appropriate is Ash Wednesday? Ash Wednesday is a time the church is a time of repentance. Crosses are put on foreheads of ashes, which, which mean nothing really. But, but it's a symbol of, let's let genuine repentance happen in this room today. We turn and confess your sins and believe and trust in the Lord. And then let's celebrate this together. So I'll, I'll pray. The men will come and we'll distribute the bread. Hold it till we're done. And then we'll, we'll come. We'll eat that together. And then we'll drink the cup together as well. And let's worship Him. The first of six weeks we have of celebrating, thinking, reflecting upon the death of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the, the scene that is set for the crucifixion of Jesus. And I would pray, O oh Lord, that You would help us these weeks during the, the Passion account, during Lent, during these 40 days that churches look to You. I pray you'd, you'd do a work in our souls. I pray that You would visit us, 
that you would meet with us, that you would stir our hearts with conviction, that you would show us that we need to entrust ourselves to the power of Christ to overcome our sin. We realize that this cup of the covenant is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God, that, that Jesus upon the cross is where our, our sins are forgiven. I just think about the contrast of the woman who lavished Jesus with love and the man who betrayed Him with hate. And oh God, may, may Rock Valley Bible Church be found as like the women who lavish You in love because, oh Lord, You are worth everything to us. Thank You for dying for us. Thank You for bearing our sins in Your body upon the cross. God, we celebrate now just in obedience to You to remind ourselves again of the wonderful, wondrous cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.